Before I get started this morning, there is an announcement um, that was mailed to us from the Ravenna Church of Christ that next Sunday evening from 6 to 7.30, they will have a topic of racism is ridiculous. Again, located at the Ravenna Church of Christ, February 19th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. And I will have that uh, posted in the back for anybody that would be interested next Sunday evening. I have always been intrigued by how investigators look for all the evidence at a crime scene to prove who is guilty. My wife hates to, uh, she just doesn't want to be haunted by that, but I love the forensic files and shows like that. That's something that before I got into education, I went to The Ohio State University uh, maybe getting into law enforcement. But then, of course, about the sophomore year came around and I switched majors, went to Kent and uh, got a dual um, degree in education so I could teach any grade in the elementary. I told them leave kindergarten off. That was too young for me. So I've certified one through eight and then seven through 12 mathematics. But I've always been intrigued by that. This morning, I'd like to ask each of us to consider being a crime scene investigator. The title of this morning's lesson is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. We will be looking at Luke chapter 24. I may not hit all the verses, but today's um, theme is on all of Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 35. What I'm going to tell you is a true story. While it is somewhat morbid, it serves to illustrate, I believe, what I want to say this morning. Several years ago, there was a TV news account of an arrest and trial of a man who had been accused of murdering his entire family with a knife. Neighbors had heard screaming on the night of the murders, but they had not given much thought until a couple weeks later when it was reported that the bodies of his family had been found in shallow graves in a field outside of town. After hearing these reports, the neighbors called the police. When the police entered the home of the victims, bear in mind, two or three weeks have passed by, they found the house to be immaculate. The carpets had been shampooed, the curtains and drapes washed and ironed, the woodwork polished. Every window had been cleaned. Every piece of furniture had been polished. Even the bedrooms and hallways had been repainted. The police found no fingerprints, no blood stains, no shredded clothing, and no signs of a struggle anywhere. This alone would have made the husband a prime suspect. No man by himself would have had such an immaculate taken care of home. Well, at least I don't think so. The defendant's story was that he and his wife had an argument a month earlier, and she had taken the kids and had left him. He said he had no idea where they were until the police told him that the bodies 
had been found just outside of town. Understandably, the police doubted the man's story. So they brought in the forensics, which just fascinate me. And many of you know that as this forensic team came in, you pretty well knew what they were going to do. They took luminol and they sprayed the man's bedroom, bathroom, hallways, floors. This chemical luminol is a compound that's designed to interact with blood. And when it comes in contact with blood, it gives off a fluorescent color, even under paint or polish or whatever you might try to do to cover it up. The police sprayed the luminol, waited for a few minutes, and sure enough, the patterns of blood began to appear throughout the house. Neither the soap, the polish, nor the fresh paint had prevented the police from seeing the blood. Even through the blood, even though, I'm sorry, even though the blood had been covered and hidden from view. When CSI investigators examine a crime scene, they often are looking for evidence that isn't readily seen with the naked eye right off the bat. Evidence they can use in a court of law. Evidence that will demand a verdict on that individual. This morning we're examining a crime scene. I'd like to look at the cross of Christ. And while some of the evidence there is obvious, other things seem to be hidden from view. And we'd like to uncover those this morning. The Bible portrays the death of Jesus as a crime of passion. It is our crime of sin and God's passion for our souls. We are familiar with the verse, John 3, 16, that while we are yet sinners, we know that God sent his son. We know that Jesus came for us. But as we listen to the conversation between Jesus and these two men on the road to Emmaus, we find in Luke 24, which is our text this morning, we find that these two men have heard the evidence of the cross. In fact, they end up by telling Jesus about it. And they've heard the evidence of the risen Christ. I'd like to look at verses 22 and 23 of our text. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. You realize these men have heard all this, but they don't believe it. It's as if there is a certain evidence that has remained hidden from their sight. Was there a painting or something? You know, you think of the crime scene. What has held them from being able to see this? There is missing evidence that has totally destroyed the hope that these men should have had when they heard Jesus being risen from the dead. Because these men have not understood this missing information, they have come to believe that Jesus' death was an accident. It was a great tragedy, some may say. I'd like to look again at Luke 24, verses 17 through 21. He asked them, 
What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still and they were downcast. One of them named Cleophas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there these past days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So at this point, you get kind of sense in their voice, all hope is gone. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. Notice verse 21. They said, we had hoped that Jesus was the one who had redeemed Israel. But they go on. He had been executed. He had been murdered. He was dead. Verse 17 says that this belief was so demoralized them that Luke tells their faces were downcast. Jesus goes on and lets them tell their story, doesn't he? And then verse 25, he rebukes them. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophet has spoken. Luke tells us that Jesus deliberately hid himself from them. Verse 16 of our text says they were kept from recognizing him. Instead of doing what I have done, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, as you see in verse 27. Jesus went back to the Old Testament. He began with the book of Genesis, and he worked his way all the way up through the prophets like Daniel and Isaiah to help these men realize what God had planned all along. Before they were even born, God had a plan. Peter said when he told the crowd who heard his sermon on the day of Pentecost, what does Peter say in Acts 2 and 23? Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. What prophecies would Jesus have shared with these men? I'm not sure, but I'd like to make a point here to make our evidence. From what I understand, there's at least 48 major prophecies dealing with the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. And he may have covered every one of them that afternoon. We don't know what he told those men. He may have went through every prophecy. But since we only have about 20 minutes left this morning, I won't go through all those major prophecies. But I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of what I think he might have shared with them that day. I believe Jesus probably started out telling these men the story of Adam and Eve. He would have told them about Adam and Eve and how they were created by God. He enjoyed the blessings of God and walked closely beside him every day. We sing that song. My dad's favorite song was number 26. That, you know, in the garden. 
when you think about walking with God and talking in the evening, that they would be able to share and walk and talk about what they saw, maybe the things of the day. But then one day, all changed. Adam and Eve had allowed themselves to be tempted by Satan to sin and disobey. They put themselves first instead of God. Why was Satan even thrown out of heaven? I believe somebody said that there was a quote that he would rather reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Whether you believe that quote or not, I can't say it's biblical. I can't say you find it in the Bible. But you might see that that thought might apply. That it was better for him to reign himself, be his own thing. He put himself first before what God had. Where does sin come from? Putting ourselves first before God. So as a result, Adam and Eve lost practically everything. They had become separated from God. They died spiritually and began to die physically. But in the midst of all this tragedy, God pronounced a curse upon Satan that goes this way. What does God say? I will put enmity, which is hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of a woman, will crush your head and will strike his heel. We find that in Genesis 3.15. Notice the prophecy was that it would be the male offspring of a woman. Not a man and a woman, but the offspring of a woman who would destroy the power of Satan. Then I believe Jesus could have turned them to Deuteronomy 18 and 15, where Moses declared, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Now, there are many great prophets listed in the Old Testament. There's Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and many others. Many of them gave gave powerful prophecies and performed magnificent miracles. And yet none of them quite measured up to what Moses did in his lifetime. Moses came for the specific reason of freeing his people from slavery. And Moses was sent by God to give his people a new and special covenant that would set them apart to be his holy people. No other prophet in the Old Testament, I see, accomplished anything like that. No matter how powerful their miracles and prophecies may have been, none had freed their people from slavery or introduced a new relationship with God to their nation. In fact, no one ever did until Jesus came. But when Jesus came, what did he do? He freed his people from the slavery of sin. He gave his people a new covenant. He set them apart to be God's holy people. Then I believe Jesus could have reminded the men on the road to Emmaus of a powerful prophecy out of Daniel chapter 9. An angel told Daniel that 77s are decreed to your people in your holy city, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Know and understand this, that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until 
the anointed one, the ruler, that will come, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Now, I can do the math. 70 sevens. Hmm, 490. Most scholars of the Bible will tell you that seven seventy sevens represents these years, of 490 years to be precise. Daniel also tells us that the prophecy was set in motion with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. So when the verdict to rebuild Jerusalem started, the clock started ticking. And according to the timetable, from what I understand, set forth in Daniel 9, the Messiah was to be revealed around 30 AD, if you do the math. 30 AD. And from what we understand historically, when was Jesus born? He began his ministry as he started. It was in around 30 AD, Jesus started his ministry. Lastly, I think that Jesus would have taken them to the last few chapters of Isaiah. Now, until Jesus came, there were Jews who believed these chapters spoke of the coming Messiah. In Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14, God tells us, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Then Isaiah goes on to tell us more about this Messiah, this Messiah or servant sent by God. As we read in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah explicitly describes the Messiah as being wounded and pierced. He was sent for the specific purpose of taking the sins on of man, all mankind. All mankind's sins were put on his shoulders. In the next few verses, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah dying, being cut off from the land of the living. In verse 12 of uh, chapter 53, it says, He poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So in other words, I'd like to summarize all that, that throughout the whole Old Testament, we're repeatedly, repeatedly told that a Messiah was coming. And he would arrive at approximately the year 30 AD. He would be the offspring of a woman, not a man and woman. That he would be like Moses, freeing his people from slavery and creating for them a new relationship with God. Notice when Jesus spoke, what did he say? 
about the Ten Commandments and so on. It was written back in the time of Moses. It was written. But I give you a new law. He would suffer wounds and piercings. And he would die for the sins of mankind. Someone has gone through the trouble of counting up all the prophecies in the Old Testament. That would come to, you know, coming up to the Messiah. They discovered that at least 333 details concerning the person and career of the Messiah. These these details described where he was born, what he would look like, and how he would die. Notice, one person noted that there are 48 major prophecies, as I told you earlier, that predicted details of the Messiah's life. What are the odds that one person, like Jesus, would fulfill all 48 prophecies written throughout time of the expanded the Old Testament? The odds of one person filling all those biblical predictions in their life, being a math teacher, I like odds. These odds aren't good. They talk about the odds of winning a lottery, or like one in seven million These odds of finding one person like Jesus to fulfill all the prophecies written in the Old Testament leading towards him, the exact time, what he was going to do, and so on, would be like you find out that somebody lost a diamond ring somewhere in the world's oceans. It dropped off. You aren't told what ocean, that the ring is somewhere in one of the oceans. That gives you 197,000 square feet of the world's oceans. Not talking about the depth of any of the oceans that you would have to find it. The odds of your finding that ring are like the odds of anyone accidentally fulfilling all 48 prophecies. That it just happened. It was a coincidence. We as Christians say when something happened, we know that it was meant by God. People of the world say, oh, that was just coincidence. I don't think so. The evidence that we have of the Old Testament, all the way through, different individuals speaking, all knew everything led to Jesus. I like to continue. But Jesus did it. And it wasn't an accident. A minister was once asked about the difference between Christianity and the other world religions. I'd like you to pay attention to this just for a moment. Now, many great scholars have given great value, and they've given valuable answers to that question. What is the difference between Christianity and other world religions? This minister pondered, that question, and this is what he came up with, which is what I would like to highlight today. About 500 years before Jesus was born, there was a man who popped up in history who was known as Buddha. Buddha, we know, developed a teaching that changed his life. And his teachings probably changed the lives of many others. A lot of people gathered around this man, and they liked what he taught. As a result, a major religion developed around this man and his teachings. 
he was 500 years before the prophecies of 30 AD. About 500 years after the birth of Christ, another man came along called Mohammed. Mohammed developed a powerful teaching that changed his life and the lives of others also. A lot of people gathered around this man and they liked what he taught. And as a result, a major religion developed around this man and his teachings. And yet, and yet, nobody predicted that a man like Buddha was going to come along. No one predicted his birth. No one predicted what he was going to be able to do. And no one would have predicted the impact he would have on others' lives. Nobody predicted a man like Muhammad was going to come along. Nobody predicted what he would live like. Nobody would predicted what he would teach. And nobody would predict how he would die. But thousands of years before Jesus was born, what was the major theme of the Old Testament? Somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. And when he comes, this is what he's going to do. This is how he will teach. This is what he's going to teach. This is how he's going to die. And this is why he's going to die in that fashion. This was the evidence that the men on the road to Emmaus had failed to understand. It was the evidence that demanded a verdict. A verdict that Jesus' death on the cross was the deliberate plan of God and that he had come to redeem Israel. And everyone else, you and I, and everyone around us, everyone that we come in contact with, he would die for us and free us from our sins. But knowing the evidence was not enough, they needed to believe it. They needed to accept it, and they needed to build their lives around it. I'd like to close with this example. A great artist by the name of Steinberg had taken in a beautiful gypsy girl to pose for his painting. At the time, he was working on a different masterpiece called Christ on the Cross. The girl used to watch him as he worked on his painting. She would spend hours watching him as he painted this picture of Christ on the cross. One day she asked the artist, he must have been a very wicked man to be nailed to the cross like that. Oh no, the artist replied. On the contrary, he was a very good man, perhaps the best man that has ever lived. He died for all others. The girl looked up at him and asked, did he die for you? From what I understand, this individual artist was not a Christian at the time. But the gypsy girl's question sincerely touched his heart. It awakened his conscience. He started to read and study more. And the story says that he actually became a believer and was baptized into Jesus. This morning, each of us is asked to ponder all the evidence that we read from God's word. We are given 
God's word for the purpose of obtaining evidence that there is a God that exists. A song that we sing, there is a God, he is alive, in him we live, and we have to live in him to do the next part. And we survive. The only way we can survive is to know that there is a God, he is alive, and that we live in him. So today, pondering all God's evidence, we need to choose for ourselves today whom we will serve. Knowing the fact that Jesus was promised to come, he lived his life as a pattern for each and every one of us to follow, and that he was willing to die on the cross for each and every one of us. The choice we have this morning is ours as we stand and sing our song of imitation. <laughs>